0: Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe. These Q&As are a supplement to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of Tucson. You listen to a teaching or watch a video, and you have questions about it, you can write it down and then meet us here Wednesdays and Saturdays at 4 o'clock. You can write out your question in the comment section and submit it. Put a question in front of it or a question mark in front of it, some way to identify it as question and then write out your question, adding whatever references you have because we can look them up, and then reread them, make sure they make sense, and then go ahead and submit it. Hope uh, that you are blessed by the time that you spend uh, with all of our our podcasts. If it's our long-form teaching, if it's our shorter hot topics, or if it's our Q&A, that God would use these to really reach out and touch your heart. Now our first question comes from a question that is often asked And that is about God hating Esau and loving Jacob out of Romans chapter 9. It just doesn't make sense when we know passages like, for God so loved the world. If God loved the world, then why did he hate Esau? And it's often used by Calvinists as if they are individuals. That before Esau and Jacob were born, God saw him and chose uh, Jacob over Esau. And, um, and that proves that God chooses one person before another, um, over another, and it has nothing to do with our own personal choice. We're predetermined by God to either be lost or saved. And I want to show you that that's not what Romans 9 is talking about. And I want to show you that by, first of all, looking at the verse that it quotes. See, when you read that passage, it says, as it says, which is the context. So, you want to look at the immediate context, but you have to also look at it in the larger context. The larger context is if it's a quote from the Old Testament, you've got to go back to see what you can learn from the Old Testament quote. To see what kind of things that he's saying, so that you don't get confused On exactly what it is. This is just gathering all of the information that we can gather to be able to make the best interpretation of whatever passage uh, that we are looking at. So I want to go ahead and put this on the screen here. This is Malachi 1. It says the burden of the Lord or the burden of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi or the Italian prophet Malachi. Which is a very bad joke. Um, uh, And, okay, so this is to Israel, right? The the word, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, it's Israel. Israel, uh, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, ruled by God. But Jacob is the father of a nation, And Malachi is speaking to the nation of Israel, not to the person of Jacob. So, when he says, I have loved you, he's talking about the nation of Israel. God chose to put his love on the nation of Israel, that they would bring forth the Messiah, that all nations would be blessed through them. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now he's talking about the nations. Jacob had the nations. Jacob was the father of the nation of the Edomites or Edom. Jacob was the father of Israel. So you have Esau and Jacob who represent two different groups. The Edomites had become enemies of God. And so when God says, Esau I have hated. Literally, this word for hated could be became an enemy. Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And look at this, and laid waste to his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, I will throw down. So God's talking to Edom. It's clear in this text that when he says, Esau I have hated, it's because the Edomites have become an enemy of God. God, In the Old Testament there's a reference where God says, there they became my enemy or there I began to hate them, however you would translate it. This word for hate can be translated as enemy as well. So we see he's talking about election of Israel over Esau. And so God chose to take the younger and, and give him the inheritance which is what God did often in the Old Testament, right? The older shall serve the younger. So, God was choosing to do that. He does it with us as well. The angels, we're a little lower than the angels, and yet Hebrews 1.14 says the angels serve us. Now, let me take you to one more, another passage here. I want to go to Romans 9 and I want to look at Romans 9 because once you understand that he's talking about people groups in Malachi, it becomes really clear in Romans 9 what he's talking about. So, let me find the exact spot here. Um, let's see, I think i am gotten too far. Oh, shows mercy and compassion on mercy. Moses, certainly. Okay. Um, just give me a second here. And let me find it. Hi, right, people. Um, Hmm, I, I, I should have had this one up to start. I could find the other one really quick. Um, um Yeah. Okay, let me let me find this here. I know it's in here. I should've pulled it up. I should have looked at it quicker. I mean I should have pulled it up first. Um. okay. Sorry. <laughs> this is funny. Well, I don't want to read the whole thing, but I might have to. All right, here we go, finally. All right, let me put this up on the screen for you here, and I want to go back just a little bit. Um, so, it says in verse 10 of Romans chapter 9, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, having done any good or evil, the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. So this is the election, not of an individual, but the election of a nation. God had chosen the nation of Israel over the nation of the Edomites. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger as it was written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And we know the context of that is not individuals. And then he goes on to say, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So God choosing the nation of Israel over the nation of the Edomites is not unfair. God can choose one people group over another. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be declared on the earth. So God chooses how he's going to use people to be able to do certain things. Now when we get to the end of this passage, and let me just go ahead and get there, we see clearly he's still talking about people groups, but now he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. He says in verse Uh, 23, and that he may make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he called, not of the Jews. So notice he's not saying even us as individuals, but us as those who believe. So God chose as vessels of mercy those who would believe in him, not those who were born Jewish. He says, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So it's anyone who believes on him. As he says in Hosea, I will call them people who are not my people, and her beloved who was not my beloved. And it shall come to pass in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, therefore, or or, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel may be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved, so he's still going to save some in Israel, but there are going to be there's a blindness that happens to the nation of Israel, spoken about later on in chapter 11, which is called a mystery. For he will finish the work and cut short in um, and cut short in righteousness, because the Lord will make short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said, as Isaiah said, um, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become as Sodom, and we would have become as Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that Gentiles, notice it's a people group, not individuals, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel pursuing the law and righteousness has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. It's not a Gentile or Jews that are chosen, it's those who by faith believe in Him, trust in Him. This is what the Bible teaches. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him, whoever would trust in Him, whoever would have faith, whether Jew or Gentile, that's who God had chosen. So, the whole chapter 9 of, of Romans is that God has rejected the people of Israel but accepted those who believe, both Jews and Gentiles. It's not a rejection of Israel and an acceptance of Gentiles. It's a rejection of the nation of Israel for people can be saved who are are not of Israel, but that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the next chapter, right? That's what it says in Romans chapter 10. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, which is written, Behold, I lay in Zion, a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, that's Jesus, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's the bottom line. Whoever has faith, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And so we can clearly see as we look at this passage that it's not about choosing and rejecting individuals or loving and hating Esau and Jacob as individuals. It's about the nation of Israel being chosen and then how God moved from the nation of Israel and that's what's changed here. In Romans chapter 9, what has changed? Well, God has has called the Gentiles and anyone who believes, Jew or Gentile, because in God there's neither Jew nor Gentile, so it doesn't matter as long as you believe. So, the contrast of that God can do whatever he wants, he wants to make vessels of honor and vessels vessel of dishonor, the vessel of dishonor is the one whom God, who doesn't believe. The vessel of honor is the one who believes, whether Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. God chose before the foundations of the world to allow those who trust in Him and believe in Him, by God's grace, through faith, not of any works, right? Ephesians uh, 2, 8, and 9. Those are the ones who are saved. And that's what Romans 9 is saying. It's not saying anything about God hating the person of Esau, but the nation of Edom, or Esau's descendants, who became enemies of God. All right, so it's good to see you guys, good to have you here. If you have a question, uh, you can write the word question down. Uh, then you can write out your question, add any references you might have. We'll be able to look them up and add them to it. Good to see you guys. Ah, we got some Facebook here today. That's uh, that's good. So, we're going to start with a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, um, Follow up, someone I know, a mother, followed the prosperity movement and it worked and it worked. She had a baby in her fifties after following the teachings and looks young. Copeland, ninety, can dance. What is the secret? Well, there I don't I don't think that there is any secret. Um I don't know how what the oldest woman in the world is to have a baby, but I would be surprised if the oldest woman in the world to have a baby is in the faith movement and if she had a baby in her 50s, well that is certainly not common, but it does happen. And that Copeland at 90 can dance. Look, Kenneth Copeland is is uh, one of the the strangest guys that's out there, all right. And um, he is taking money from people to enrich himself and it's obvious that he does that. And there's no secret. Um, If people, good things happen to to all people, bad things happen to all people. So, by this very argument, Jari, that you're making, or by the argument that you're attempting to make here, is, you could say, well, there's someone who is a Muslim and they're rich. They're in Saudi Arabia and they're following Islam. And so, what's the secret? Well, no. Things, good and bad things happen to people everywhere and in all kinds of groups. And bad things happen to people who are in the prosperity movement, and good things happen to it. So, this is what we would call anecdotal evidence that your experiences do not equal the truth. People often will do that. They think, well, I did this, this was the outcome, therefore it must be true. That's anecdotal. In order to do a study, you would have to get hundreds of people, better yet thousands, in the faith movement and then thousands outside of the faith movement. Put them into a controlled study where you can control what happens to them by what they believe. And and then you would have your parameters. Are these gonna be Christians who are part of the faith movement? Do they not believe the, the passages of the faith movement, that God wants you rich or that God never wants you sick? And then you have Christians who do believe these things and then see if there's any anomalies out of thousands of people. The larger the study, the better the more defined the differences between the groups, the better. That would be a way to look at a study and if then you came and you said, you know, 50% of the people were, were, were richer in the prosperity group than, than the other group. Um, I don't even know if that would still tell you much, but at least it would be better than one person who went to the Faith Movement and had a baby in her 50s or Kenneth Copeland who at 90 can dance. If um, I play golf with an 87 year old who hits the ball almost as far as I do. So, he's almost 90. He is a he's a, he's a lawyer. <laughs> he's, not a, he's not a Christian. I, I'm, I'm praying for him, but he's not a Christian. He's 87 years old. He hits the ball, like I said, almost as far as I do. And um, as far as, as, as men who are 30 years younger than him do. He hits the ball further than a lot of guys who are a lot younger than him. And I could say by that, hey, becoming a lawyer is going to allow you to be able to hit the ball a long way. So, if he's 87 years old and he can still hit the ball that far, almost 90, right? And he can still get out there and golf 9 holes and and, and hit the ball that far, then what's his secret? It's it's, got to be becoming a lawyer, right? Because he's a lawyer and he's able to do that. Your experiences do not equal truth. That's anecdotal evidence. So, you're saying, I had this experience so it must be true. It, it doesn't equal truth. Our, our authority isn't even studies, Jari. Our authority is God's word. Now, there are other authorities in our lives, but the ultimate authority is God's word by which everything else is tested against. And so, um, I'm going to be, I, I want to go on the record, by the way, that this question was asked. So that when someone says that I'm always talking about the faith movement, they know um, that I was asked this question about it. Um, The Bible clearly says, if people teach godliness as a means of financial gain, withdraw yourself from them. And we are not to serve and follow God to gain what we can gain, but to sacrifice what we can sacrifice for him. Alright, Jari, thank you very much, and if you do have a follow-up to this uh, this question, I'll go ahead and take that if you need some clarification on what I'm saying. Alright, so uh, we have a question from Manny. Manny, good to see you. Manny says, question, in Matthew 24, Tribulation, Second Coming Context, verses 38 through 44, can this refer to the pre-tribulation rapture and Luke 21, 34 through 36 also? Thank you for all you do. Blessings, Maranatha. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. Maranatha. All right. So um, I like to use Luke 17 rather than Matthew 24, and I'll tell you why. So let's go to let's go to Matthew 24. Let's go to the verses you're talking about first of all. So Matthew 24. We'll start in verse 38. Thanks for putting the references in there. Um, and so it says, um, I'm going to go ahead and put this up here on the screen for you. And here we go, Um, for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, let's see if we want to go back one more, we do, Um, we want to go back to 37, but as in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So, there's going to be something about the days of Noah that were like the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. So, what is it like? They're eating, drinking, giving in marriage, things are going on as normal when all of the sudden, sudden destruction comes upon them. And and when Noah entered the ark, then it happened. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also the coming of the Son of Man, um, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and another one left. And it's popular today to say that the evil person is taken and the one that is left is the righteous person. So, I take it that they're, they're post-tribulation when they say that. So, they believe that Jesus comes back again, and the wicked are taken off of the earth, and the righteous remain. Um, But that's not the way that I read this passage. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour the Lord is coming. Now, the accusation here, by, by some, is that this is very Jewish, and he's not talking to the church. And so, this would not apply to the church because it's Jewish. I think it does apply, and I think that he is talking to Jews here when he's talking about them fleeing Jerusalem, but he also was talking about the church when he talks about the coming of the day of the Lord. He can switch topics in the middle of a chapter. He doesn't have to stay with one people group like Israel the whole time, but Israel is involved in the latter days, so in Matthew 24, he's dealing with Israel in the latter days. Let me just see if I can find this passage in Luke 17, which is why I like to use it a little bit better. Um, because he's talking to he's talking to the church, he's talking to to Christians, and um, yeah, he's talking to Christians about the the kingdom of God. And if I can't find it pretty quickly, I'll, I'll move on. It basically says the same thing, only it's in a it's in, in a different context. All right, here we go. So. Um, now, Jesus was an itinerant preacher. An itinerant preacher means that he went around and he probably preached the same message. So, here we have another time where he said this, some of the same things he said in Matthew 24. But here he says this to his disciples, okay? So, he says to his disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see the Son of Man and you will not see it. You will, the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. So, the context here is after Jesus is resurrected and ascended up into heaven. And they will say to you, look here, or look there, do not go after them, or follow them. For as lightning flashes out of one part of heaven to the other part of heaven, so also will the Son of Man be in his days. So when he returns, everyone's going to see it. But first, uh, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day Noah entered in the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, it was in the days of Lot. So, this is what was added in, in, in chapter 17, Luke 17. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built, And on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from the heaven and destroyed them all. So I'm seeing the day Noah went into the ark, the flood came and they were saved. And then Lot was taken out of the city and the city was destroyed. And so the church will be taken out of the earth in the resurrection of the dead. And they are changed in a moment and a twinkling of an eye. Even so will it be in the days that the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who was on a housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not go down and take them away. And likewise, the one who was in the field, let him not turn back. Now this would be the, this would be to the nation of Israel about the uh, abomination of desolation. He goes on to say, remember Lot's wife, whoever seeks to save his life will lose another, lose his life, will save it. I tell you, the night there will be two men in one bed, one will be taken, another left. Two women will be grinding together, the one will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in a field, one will be taken and another will be left. So, I do believe that these are talking about the 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 resurrection. And you know, many that I like to refer to it as the resurrection. Um rather than that, than the rapture? Because the resurrection is a larger event. That's the event that takes place. The dead in Christ are raised, and then we who are alive and remain will be changed in the moment and twinkling of an eye. Whenever the resurrection happens, there, there are going to be those who are alive. And even if we're wrong and it doesn't happen before the tribulation period, there will be those who are alive and remain who have, will have to be changed in a moment and a twinkling of an eye when it happens. So I like to call it the resurrection because that's what it is. And then there's a smaller event where the living are transformed. And that's where Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We are not all sleep. We are not all all going to sleep, but some will be changed in a moment and in a twinkling of an eye. Now, let me make sure that I answered your question here. Manny, sometimes I get off on some other things and forget to answer the question. Matthew 24, the second coming context, verses 3 to 40, can this refer to pre-tribulation rapture? Luke 21, 34 and 36, thanks for all you do, blessings. Yeah, so I do believe that it refers to that. That's that's what I believe. I believe it refers to the second coming of Jesus. Um, And so did Pastor Chuck, by the way. And we had a conference where Warren Wiersbe and Pastor Chuck were invited to the conference back in the early 2000s, so before Warren Wiersbe went to be with the Lord, and Pastor Chuck went to be with the Lord. And um, they were doing a Q&A at our conference, and Pastor Chuck and Warren Wiersbe were there. And the question about this passage was brought up. Pastor Chuck started to answer it the way I just answered it. And Warren Wiersbe said to him, "Um, there's no no rapture of the church in Matthew 24. Now, I really respect Warren Wiersbe, but here is, we're at a Calvary Chapel Southwest Pastors and Leaders Conference, Pastor Chuck is there, he makes a statement, Warren Wiersbe corrects him or has a difference with him, and Pastor Chuck responded with, Will, you would know better than me. And we went on to another question, and I thought how incredibly gracious that was because If there's going to be a difference at a Calvary Chapel pastors conference between Warren Wiersbe and Pastor Chuck, then everyone would be on Pastor Chuck's side. But he, he dropped it and let it go, and in humility just said, you would know better than I, didn't have to prove that everything that he says is true. Such good lessons for us to learn about being humble and not always having to let people know or make everybody know and understand that we're right. Okay so thank you Manny uh, for your question. I appreciate that um, We have a question from Rod Rod good to see you. Rod says, do you think seven trumpets, seven seals and seven bowls overlap hmm The seals starting with the fourth trumpet, the bowls starting with the fifth trumpet and ending at the same time. Yeah um, I I don't know that we can tell for sure how that happens. Uh, it looks like the trumpet judgments come out of, excuse me, yeah, the trumpet judgments come out of the seal judgments. That's what it looks like when we're there. Instead of the, what'd you say, the fourth uh, the fourth trumpet. So, so, it's seals first, then it's trumpets, then it's bowls. So, the seal starting with the with the fourth trumpet. No, so it would be the other way around, right? The, the trumpet starting with the fourth seal. And since I'm not sure exactly what, what you're putting forth here, I won't go back and look at it. Um, but in in Revelation, the it looks like the seventh seal. Well, when you open the seventh seal, that's when the seventh, first of the seven trumpets is, is blasted. You see the seven trumpets with the seven seals. So, they overlap in that way. And then the bowl judgments are all distinct in themselves. The last of the trumpet is sounded, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God. And then there are seven mighty angels that have seven bowls. And these are the worst of all and they are poured out on the earth. So I'm gonna say that I don't see it that way. I'm, I'm not gonna claim that it's completely and totally not true, but I don't see it that way. I see the, the seals and then out of that come the seven trumpets out of the seventh seal. And then after that's done, the, the the title deed of the earth is now his. The seals have all been opened. And at the seventh seal, the seven trumpets sounds, that's part of the seventh seal. And then when the title deed is opened, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God. That's the seventh trumpet. And um, the earth has now moved from the control of Satan, who is the God of this world right now, who had authority over nations. Jesus showed... showed Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in their glory in a moment and said, all of this I will give you because it has been given over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. And Jesus didn't rebuke him. And in order to be a real temptation, Jesus had to have control over the kingdoms of the world and give them to whoever he wishes. So he has to be the God of this world right now. So somehow dominion was given to Adam and Eve in Genesis and taken by Satan. And then God takes it back by opening the scroll and the seven seals, and then the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God in the seventh trumpet. Alright, Rod, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, I don't know um, if someone teaches that or not. If they do, let me know who it is. And I will, um, let me know who it is. I'll, I'll take a look at them. All right. Um, Good to see you, Vance. I realized after I was reading back through the questions that I didn't really answer your question. I I brought up something else um, from the question that you had this last week. I was in a hurry near the end. um, But Vance says, uh, Kenneth Copeland is of the devil. And um, I tend to agree, by the way. Thank you, Vance. I appreciate that. All right. So, um, Jason. We have a question from Jason. Um, Jason says, question, the Flat Earthers talk about the firmament in Genesis and other places in scripture and say it proves the earth was flat. What exactly is the firmament? Yeah, so um, let's go ahead and go to Genesis and see if we can read it. And I'm not familiar with all the arguments of the flat earthers, all right? I can say that I don't agree with it, but um, Jason, I'm I'm not familiar with it. Um, If you want to know more information about it, I listened to a podcast by Mike Winger on the Flat Earth Arguments. I just listened to it while I was driving, so I didn't study in-depth in it. Um, But I liked a lot of the things that he said, so that may be a resource for you to look at. And I don't know if he talks about the firmament in that, but let's go ahead and go to Genesis chapter 1. Jason, let's take a look at this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form, and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the day, light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and morning were the first day. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from uh, the waters. Thus God made a firmament and divided the waters from the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven and so evening and morning and was the second day. Alright, so let me go back here, Jason. Um, I have not studied Revelation, I mean, excuse me, Genesis, and the creation passages in a long time. So, what I'm going to say here is a bit dated, and I would want to do a little bit more work on it, but I'll tell you how, at least my understanding was the last time I went through it, that God had made a canopy that covered the earth. Also, the axis of the earth was straight up and down. And God made a canopy that covered the earth. This would be a filter for a lot of the UV rays that would come through. And there were waters in the ocean and then the firmament and then waters above which were in a cloud canopy that was always around the earth. And there were no rain in those days, the Bible says, and a mist would come up and water the ground. So the water wouldn't fall from the clouds like it would um, during the flood and after the flood. And this is explained as to why people could live 900 years. Because we weren't affected, our bodies weren't affected by the, the sun, the rays of the sun, the way that they are today. And we know that, hey, you get out in the sun, you spend a lot of time in the sun, you age a lot faster. And there's rays of the sun that actually go all the way through you. And so it's causing us to age at a more rapid time. That's the idea anyway. Um, and then at the flood, the upper canopy fell to the earth and the springs of the earth were opened and the water covered the entire earth up to a certain depth. And um, and then the canopy was gone, the firmament was gone. So that's my understanding. And then it says, and I think it's Isaiah, that the valleys and the mountains came up and down so God rearranged the earth so mountains were higher and the valleys were lower and the water that fell from the canopy the water above the firmament that fell to the ground is still here on the earth, although all of it would be in um, in the earth now, but mountains were pushed higher and valleys were pushed lower so that the, the water could cover the entire earth. Um, I know that there's four corner passages that they use, um, that there's some other passages that they use. Um, I think, I think it's, to me, I mean I'm a skeptical guy, okay? And um, I'm even skeptical when it comes to the things of God. There are, are a lot of things that people will find as evidence in the Old Testament for prophecy that I that I go I don't I don't know if that's really a good prophecy to go to. I find incredible prophecies. Don't get me wrong. It's just when people mention 350 prophecies Jesus fulfilled, and I go back and look at those 350 prophecies, a lot of them are like, um, I'm not. Sh- that's not clear enough for me. I see why they say it but I like things to be clearer. And so I'm a pretty skeptical person. I have to have things really laid out for me. I really wanna be a Berean and search the scriptures and make sure that the things are so. So I'm very skeptical about the Flat earths, Earthers and what they say. Um, and um, let me just take a look here and see if I can find um, the YouTube page with the uh, that uh, Mike Winger did. Let me just, um, I'm just gonna take a second here. Flat Earth. All right, I'm just searching here on my phone that I'm sharing with you guys. Here we go. So um, let me just go ahead. And, yeah, then we're going to bring this up on the screen for you. So that is the video that I'm talking about, and I want to see if I can bring it up a little bit further, refuting the Flat Earth Bible verses. Um, you should have um, uh, you should have checked, and I don't know what the rest of it says here. Um, Let's see if I can. You you should have. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what happened there. Anyway, that is, um, that's the 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 video from Mike Winger. Um, Mike is a pastor of a Calvary Chapel, and um, started doing YouTube videos like eight years ago, and really diving in. and Does a great job at taking topics and really doing some really good research. All right. So thank you, Jason. I appreciate your question. Uh, we have another question from TC One. Um, TC says, A "Question: Was Lamentations written before or after Jeremiah? Thoughts?" Um, sorry, TC. Uh, I haven't. I haven't looked into it. I just don't have that information on the top of my head. I'm going to say that I think it was. Jeremiah and then Lamentations but I could so be wrong with that. I don't have anything I'm thinking of or um, it's been a long time since we taught Jeremiah and Lamentations. So, I'm just gonna have to say I'm not sure. If I think about it later on, I'll look it up um, and see if there was anything that showed that one was written before the other. All right, but thank you, TC, for your question. I appreciate that. Sorry, I couldn't be of any more help than that. Um, That's the nature of asking questions, you know, you don't have have time to go and look things up, and maybe you can remember and look them up later. So, we have a question from uh, Barbara. Barbara says, I recently have fully embraced, Lord, not my will but yours. Okay, I like that. Um, For my life. Psalms 37, 4 and 5 says, Delight in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Are these two concepts in contrast? delight in the lord who will give you the desires of your heart. No, they're they're not a contrast. They're the same. So um I I really like this and and this is one of my this is one of my favorite verses. Um, if I had I have a couple of verses that I would consider to be my life verses, but I really like this one for overcoming sin. So when you're struggling and you got things going on in your life and you're not really able to get the sin out of your life and, and you're not really you're not really happy about the way you're living for Christ, then there's a couple of passages that help. One of them is walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So walking in the spirit, you got something going on, you you walk endeavor to walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The Bible also says that with every temptation comes a way of escape, so you want to start looking for the way of escape in the area that you are tempted in because God will give you a way of escape. And this passage, a delight in the Lord who will give you the desires of your heart. So you delight in God and your desires change. Now your will is God's will because you're delighting in the Lord. Barbara, you delight in the world and now you have worldly desires that God can't answer. An equivalent to this in the New Testament is John 15 where Jesus says if you abide in the vine and my word abides in you, you can ask whatever you desire and it will be given to you. Again, it's it, it's not, God God isn't saying, look, if you desire heroin, then be, be in the vine and my word in you and you can ask for heroin, you're gonna get it, that you won't get it. Your desires are going to change. They're going to become less worldly. They're going to become less sinful. They're going to become less me-centric and going to become more God-centric, which is very, very important. So, when we say, your will be done, not my will, then we want to delight in the Lord. So, he'll give us, so our desires will change. We want to abide in the vine, his word in us. We want to walk in the spirit. So these are very practical ways, and I love the practicality of these particular verses. These are very practical ways that I can find myself really abiding in Christ and getting sin and selfishness out of my life and beginning to live for Him. All right? Um, I I embraced this, I don't know how many years ago, when I finally said to the Lord, I've I've said this from the pulpit before, if God doesn't want it for me, I don't want it even if I want it if you understand what that means. If God doesn't want it for me, I don't want it even if I want it. I might want something, but if God doesn't want it for me, I don't want it. So I've gotta override my will for whatever God's will is. And delight in the Lord is the way that you're gonna be able to, not my will, but your will be done. Because the more you delight in Him, the more you're going to have the desires that God gives you. It's so practical and so solid and I love it for battling sin because it isn't like, stop doing that, you know, stop hating, stop being jealous, stop being contentious. It's not that. It's, I'm going to walk in the Spirit. I'm going to I'm going to be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control to everyone. And that covers all the areas of the flesh. And I'm gonna I'm gonna endeavor to walk in the Spirit day by day. And and God will give me the desires of my heart. Because I'm now it's his will and not my own will. And again, even if God's will and my will differ, hey, I want God's will because I know ultimately that's going to be the best that there can possibly be. All right, Barbara, thank you very much for your question. I love it. I love that passage. It definitely is one of my favorites. Um, and uh, especially when it comes to fighting for, um, for sin. Um, so, Psych Man, good to see you. Psych Man says, question, does Matthew 13:30 gather those to be burned first? Does not Matthew 13:30 gather those to be burned first? So, let me see what your, um, is, this is in reference to um, Manny's question on Matthew 24, maybe? I'm not sure, but let me go ahead and pull up your verse and maybe I can get a little bit more clarity um, from Matthew, all right? Matthew, Matthew, I'm sorry. It's like I can't let there just be silence, right? I gotta say something. Okay, Matthew 13, 30, and let me go ahead. I'm gonna come back a little bit. Okay, so this is the um, parable of the tares and the wheat. Right? So, um, talking specifically about the gathering of the wheat into the barn. Um, so, this is the end of the age. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers um, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them. Gather the wheat into my barn. So, when Jesus returns, the armies are gathered together to fight him and he destroys them by the sword that proceeds out of his mouth. And then those who are on the earth populate the earth during the millennium. When we come to the end of the millennium and the devil is released and he gathers together the people from the four corners of the earth, not a flat earth statement by the way, and he, they all come against Israel where where Jesus is ruling from, it says that he consumes them with his fire. And so, they are destroyed first if if you want to do that. Now, I don't know that the construct of this passage necessarily has to be first and not at the same time. First gather together the tares and bind them into bundles and burn them and then gather the wheat into my barn. Um, This is a parable. And in a parable, it's not a construct like a command would be. So, if Jesus were giving a command, follow my instructions to the T here, this is what's gonna happen. Then you could take the orders and have them be something. But in a parable, when you try to make a point out of something that's, that's secondary to the text, the first idea here is that there's gonna be false believers. And the false believers are going to be revealed and they're going to be burned up while the other ones go into the barn. So, the order that that happens, I don't know that you can argue from this passage. Um, you could say, well, it says first, but he's talking about tares and wheat. So, how is the, what is the way that he, you do tares and wheat? I don't know. Why is it easier to take the tares out first and, and throw them and burn them with fire and then the tares and the, the wheat later? And is that same thing that's true about tares and wheats true about false Christians and non-Christians? And that's where we don't know. But I do think that there is a way in which the false believers are revealed, both at his return, his glorious return, at the end of the tribulation period, and the way that he consumes the enemies at the end of the tribulation period. All right. Thank you, Psych Man. I appreciate that. So, all right. Good to see you guys. Um, we have a question from Skibro the Hebrew. Good to see you. So Skibro the Hebrew says, um, are we um, to the, are we are we liable to this commandment to replace our neighbor's ox? Exodus 21, 33. When a man opens a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer your question by talking about the broader topic. All right, Ski Bro? Um, we are not under the law. We have been set free from the commands of the law. And the Bible clearly says this in Galatians chapter 3. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, and when we come to Christ, we no longer need the tutor. The law, when you think about it, wasn't, it was good, okay, the Bible says that the law was perfect and that God made it perfect for them that's there, but remember the law had concessions in it. The law allowed them to have a king even though God didn't want them to have a king. God allowed them to get a divorce even though God didn't want them to get divorced. So there were things in the law that can't be carried over to today and we are not under the law anymore. Let me get out of this particular screen and let me get you back up on the screen here. Um, Skibro, the Hebrew. Um, so, no, we are not. Now, what happens if I live in a rural area, like where I was born, and the neighbor's ox in, in Clinton, Iowa, okay, and the neighbor's ox wanders over and falls into a pit? Um, do we have to replace the ox? Well, what does love tell you to do? Because the Bible, because Jesus said and the Bible says that we fulfill the law and the prophets in two commandments, that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. And so I'm not going to, I'm not going to steal from my neighbor if I'm loving them. I'm going to want to do what's right. Was it my fault that the ox wandered over and fell in? Do I have that responsibility? Remember, a lot of the laws in Exodus, Leviticus, were written for their culture, for their time, and and not in our culture, and in the day that they lived. And so, there were, because slavery was a thing in their day, There were commands about slavery. Slavery was a thing in the New Testament. And so, there's there's direction towards slaves on how they're supposed to act towards those who are their masters. It doesn't mean God thought slavery was a good idea or thought a good thing, it was just that it was part of that world. So, we are not under the law. Um, Galatians also says, if the law could save us, then Christ died in vain. So if you think you have to keep those particular laws in order to be saved, um, Jesus said, not one jot or tittle of the law will be done away with until it is fulfilled, until it is completed. And Jesus completed it. He became our sacrifice, so we don't get sacrifices. He became our high priest that gave the sacrifices, so we don't have a high priest. Uh, He became our Sabbath, rest, so we don't keep the Sabbath day. So Jesus fulfilled all of those things that were in the law. And so the book on the law has been closed. We are not living under it. It has been completed. It has been fulfilled. And we are not a part of it. All right. If you have questions about that, and I didn't answer it, if you still have questions, you can ask a follow-up. What do we got? Another 12 minutes or so here. Um, but thank you, Skibro. I appreciate it. Um, Live Phoenix has a question. Life Phoenix says, uh, what exactly is the Leviathan mentioned in Job? Is it a real creature, dinosaur, or is it an evil spirit? I think, again, here I'm, I'm, so I've been pastoring for 38 years and um, one of the first books of the Bible we covered was Genesis. We also covered Job very early on and I've taught it since then. Um, the leviathan and the behemoth, both of them in the book of Job, I believe are real creatures. And I believe that they are extinct creatures. I don't believe the leviathan is an alligator. I don't think the behemoth is a um, hippopotamus. Um, hippopotamus are, are, are fierce or an elephant. Um, when you read the description of these, it seems like the best reading is a literal reading and that these are creatures that are extinct now and that before the flood there were dinosaurs. Now I don't make an issue as to the age of the earth or whether the days in Genesis are literal or not. I have my own personal beliefs about it, but because the world looks old, then I don't want to make that an issue and argue with someone about that when I could be giving them the gospel and they could come to Christ. So, I don't make that an issue. So, when we talk about whether or not there were dinosaurs before the flood or whether there could have been a gap in Genesis 1 one and 2, um, those don't really concern me all that much. I What I do is I acquiesce the age of the earth. And because the earth looks old, at least it does to us. Now, I know that there's a lot out there about the Genesis flood and layers that are laid down immediately and a lot that can be seen. And it seems like the world may be forgetting on purpose the flood that happened. But if if you took a scientist and you took him to Adam on the day he was created and said to the scientist, how old is Adam? And the scientist said, 25? And you went, you, you're an idiot. You couldn't be more wrong. He's a day old. God made him a day ago. And you can't even tell that. But the scientist is looking from the scientific aspect. 25-year-old is what he looks like. Would he just come into being? So, when God created the worlds, did he create it like a newborn baby? Or did he create it like he created Adam? Like, we know that our Earth is aging. We know the Earth's aging, the universe is aging. So, did God bring everything into being in the middle, Like, like it was how many ever years old? Or did God bring it like a newborn baby and we've seen it age from having no scars on it or not? That's the real question. And people say, well, God's being deceptive then. Because we have light trails that would be, that would be as if the earth aged but the earth didn't age. But not if, not if when he made Adam he had hair. Right? The hair could be like, you could tell, you know, something about people by the the length of the hair. And so, is God being deceptive, or is God just creating Adam like a 25-year-old man? And if God created the Earth like an Earth that was older, or the universe like an universe that was older, then these questions fall away. And they're obvious Leviathan because God says to Job, and this is why I think it's best to take this literally, God says, consider Leviathan. Remember the battle? Were you able to take him? Never do it again. So he had an encounter Job did with a leviathan and God says don't do it again and he brings up what that leviathan is and looks like and it doesn't look like anything that's on the earth today. So um do I put them in the time of the dinosaurs? I'm not sure. Because again, I'm not sure how old the earth is and 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 what's there. I do know that the 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 um the fossil record does not back evolution evolutionists have abandoned, have abandoned the fossil records. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, All right, so Hebrew of the the Hebrew says, there are a few hundred comments that are in the Bible millions of Christians are not aware of that are used in our judicial system. Uh, Yeah, I believe that. Um, I don't know about those exact numbers, but yeah, I believe that. I think that the Bible was obviously important to to many of those that founded our nation and they came up with our judicial system. And many Christians did that and used it. So I think that's good. Um, Do we have to keep that? Do I have to keep the laws of Leviticus? No, because I'm not under the law anymore. I've been set free from the law. All right. But thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Henry Jones says, so when God rearranged the earth made mountains lower and valleys higher. Would that have included the, um, uh, the continents breaking apart during the flood? Um, I don't think so. You guys are putting me to the test on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Um, so, it says that during the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. I'm not exactly sure where that passage is. And then we have the genealogy of when Peleg lived and I don't believe it was the time of the flood. Even people who study the crust of the earth believe that at one time there was, I think they call it Pangaea, one continent that split apart and drifted. And, and, and that drift is still going on to some degree today with the plates of the earth. Uh, Uh, I got the mute button on in time, I think. All right. Um, so um, I usually don't see when I'm teaching, so that's interesting. It's happened to me a couple of times in here, um, in the studio. Um, so I think the rearrangement of the Earth happened as the flood waters receded, because had they not, the waters had to rem- and the water had to go somewhere. So. The water evaporates, and comes back down, it evaporates, and comes back down. So it doesn't leave our earth, I don't, I don't think. There's any, it doesn't leave our earth. Our desert, atmosphere doesn't let it go anywhere. It's all the water's still here. So as the water receded, you would think that God then would have brought the, the valleys lower and the mountains higher. That's what I think. Um, again, I'm talking off the top of my head, I'm thinking out loud by what I know with passages. And if I gave some more thought to it, I might come up with something um, a little bit different. Um, Hebrew, the Hebrew has another a response to the question. Um, question, but since Jesus didn't discuss these other hundreds of commandments, then should we observe them? Example, replacing your neighbor's ox that was hurt or died in your property. No, because uh, it clearly states that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ and then once we come to Christ we no longer need to tutor and that if the law could save us we didn't need Christ and it literally says in Galatians we are no longer under the law. It literally says that and Romans talks about it as well very clearly that we're not under the law and people that try to put us under the law are going back to the battle that happened before um, Acts 15. Where you've got a council that goes to Jerusalem with the very issue should the uh, the Gentiles keep the law. This was before the destruction of, of the temple in Jerusalem. There's still Christians in Jerusalem who are attending the temple. The early church did that. There's no reason to think that they didn't give sacrifices during that time, but God would put an end of that with the destruction of Jerusalem and in Acts chapter 15, which we're going to cover here pretty soon. We're, we're marching towards that in our study of the book of Acts. Tonight will be in Acts chapter 9 covering the Ethiopian eunuch, which I skipped over last week and want to cover it. Um, but they clearly told them they did not have to keep the law. There were no commandments that they had to keep under the law in Acts chapter 15. So, we don't need to break down. It doesn't have to say every single law out of the 613 commandments that were in the Old Testament. It doesn't have to say you don't have to keep this law. It just simply says, we're not going to put any further restrictions on them. And God told Peter, don't call unclean what I call clean, which is the dietary laws. All right. So, thank you again, uh, the Hebrew. Um, we have a question from Matthew. What do we got here? Another few minutes. All right. <clears throat> Matthew says, hello, Pastor Robert. In John 3:36, it talks about God's wrath on sinners. Can you explain it in context about sin? Um, the sinners in the Scripture. Can you explain in context about sinners in the Scriptures? Alright, let's do that from the passage that you brought up. John three thirty six, The very last one. Um, so it says, it says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So if I'm looking back at your question, Matthew, um, talking about the wrath of God on sinners. So the wrath of God isn't really on sinners. The wrath of God is on those who don't believe. He who believes in the Son of God, the Son, has everlasting life. He who does not believe, the Son, shall not see life, but God's wrath abides on him. So all of us are sinners. All we like sheep have gone astray. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all of us have sinned. We have had our sins forgiven, but 1 John 1 says, I think it's 1-4, if we say we don't have any sin, we're a liar and the truth isn't in us. So we still have the sin nature, and I continue to sin and continue to need God's grace. So you could say Robert Furrow is a sinner. I wouldn't say I'm not a sinner. I wouldn't declare I'm not a sinner. I've been forgiven by grace, and God's mercy is on my life. And by His mercy and grace, He is forgiving me of my sins as I endeavor to walk with Him, as I'm battling against sin, trying to walk in the Spirit, delight in the Lord, uh, doing the things I need to do to get sin out of my life. But yet I'm a sinner. God's wrath isn't on me, but I am a believer. And so God's wrath is not upon me, but is upon those who don't believe. It's those that haven't been, haven't receive the Son. That's what really matters. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not uh, believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So, the wrath of God has been lifted from from you and me because we believe in Jesus, not because because we're not sinners anymore. All right. So, um, thank you very much for joining us today. In our Q and A, um, it was um, I enjoyed it. I really did. I love looking into God's Word, and um, again, this is a supplement to the teaching ministry that I'm involved in. So, if as you're watching teachings you have questions about what we're talking about. Tonight we're talking about the Ethiopian eunuch. There's some really unique things there. It's not exactly what you think it is. And um, we're going to learn a little bit about evangelism. We're going to talk about baptism and whether or not that's salvation. So, if you have questions about that study tonight, you can ask them um, next Saturday, all right? Um, but I really do appreciate you guys. Um, look, stay close to Jesus and endeavor to walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit more tonight than you did today and more tomorrow than today, and more the next day than than before. Endeavor to walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Delight in the Lord, and I'll give you the desires of your heart. What a great way for us to live. What a great way for us to do the things God's called us to do. All right, so God bless you guys. Love you. I am out. We will talk to you uh, next. uh, We've got our Bible studies going on, but um, Lord willing, we'll have another Q&A next Saturday. So get those questions ready. All right, guys, we will see you later on. I'm out.